on this very long week in time travel. Rachel Tolalay joins me to celebrate the late Michael Pickwood. Also, we launch a new segment about those episodes that we can enjoy and cringe at simultaneously. Reality Bomb's Joy Piedmont and Verity's Deb Stanish are here to help us define problematic faves. It's September 4th, and This Week in Time Travel is back. Welcome back after a long hiatus to This Week in Time Travel. If you saw on social media, you saw that I faced a loss in my family that I wasn't quite expecting at the time it had happened. Uh, I miss my mom, Kay Sutterth, very much, and we took some time off for me to deal with that. I appreciate all of the good words from everybody out there who uh, texted or tweeted and let me know they cared. Really do appreciate it. And it's good to finally be back. Hi, Alyssa. Hi, Chip. It's good to see you again. And there has been an awful lot happening in the world of Doctor Who while we were on hiatus. Uh, but while we were away, uh, something significant happened in the online world of one Alyssa Frankie. Yes. Uh, so for the last few years, I haven't really had a secret identity because I've used my full name online, but I was keeping my personal and professional world a little bit separate from my blogging world. And I had a lot of good reasons to do that. Uh, but mainly I wanted this place to be an escape from, you know, <laughs> Just I'm just going to point vaguely in the direction of all of it. But this past weekend, I decided it's time to bring those two worlds together. So hello, let me properly introduce myself. My name is Alyssa Frankie. I am the social media manager at Emily's List. You can follow my other personality. I can't decide if it's the Clark Kent or Superman of my two personalities uh, on Twitter at A-L-Y-S-S-A-F-R-A-N-K-E, all one handled together. Yeah, I decided to kind of bring those together now because I really wanted to talk about my work in more contexts. I wanted to talk about my mission to elect more pro-choice Democratic women to all levels of office across the United States of America. In case you haven't noticed, we have an election coming up in November, aka there will be another hiatus because I will be working eight-hour weekends to try to do everything that I can to elect some fantastic candidates to office. Um, so I wanted to be able to let you know why I was gone, what I was doing, and uh, we're not going to talk about it a lot here because this is a Doctor Who podcast. But I will be talking to you a little bit about what you can be doing uh, to assist me in my mission. Your first assignment this weekend, if you haven't already done it, is to register to vote because uh, that's kind of important and you're running out of time to do that. So thanks, everyone. That's a lot of attention on me, and I'm going to go crawl underneath my internet rock again now. <laughs> we haven't exactly hidden our political sensibilities on this week in time travel, and although this isn't going to be a weekly politics show, at its best, Doctor Who is a progressive show, and that's why we love it, and that's why we advocate for progress. If, it, if anything, Doctor Who has helped teach us to do that. Sometimes you just have to make a stand. Sometimes you just have to say no. Somebody once said that a few years ago on this show. Somebody very, very wise, but 
if Series 11 does premiere the weekend before Election Day, I will complain about it from now until the end of time. (laughs) A very good episode, by the way. Um, (laughs) So while we've got your attention, last Tuesday... Michael Pickwood passed away, and he was amazing. He was the production designer for Doctor Who ever since A Christmas Carol. And this is nothing against any previous production designers. When you have a stellar writer, a stellar director, a stellar production designer, you suddenly notice that a good show can be great in certain ways. And... Michael Pickwood was that kind of production designer for Doctor Who. He elevated the show tremendously. And Alyssa got to talk with a director who worked with him very closely. So let's throw it over to Alyssa and our returning guest and friend, Rachel Talloway. We're joined now by director Rachel Talalay to uh, remember the late production designer, Michael Pickwood. Rachel, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. So you worked with him on all of your episodes of Doctor Who, is that correct? Yes. Can you tell us a little bit about what he was like as a production designer and what kind of work that he did on your episodes? Michael is like your mad Uncle Monty from... With Nail and I, um, he was the most intelligent, eclectic, generous, fascinating. It's hard to find all the adjectives to describe a man as he he was the consummate everything man. And I think, as Stephen Moffat said in his beautiful piece for the BBC, Michael knew a lot about everything. He didn't just know tiny things about everything. He had deep knowledge about what seemed like everything. So Michael was also a full-scale production designer in that he... uh, There are some shows where the location manager has... uh, The locations are very important and they have a lot of control. Michael controlled the entire look uh, controlled in a, uh, I say that in a very positive way, the entire look of your episode from all elements of art. So he never wasn't with you on a location scout because all locations were critical to the look of the entire show. And Michael could see, he could look at a rock and see how that rock could be another planet. <laughs> so sometimes you would walk into places and think, what am I seeing here? And Michael would create an entire world out of there. And the challenges, as everybody knows, who's probably listened to this on Doctor Who, is that it's a different world every week. And at a certain point, Cardiff and the environs are limited in terms of how much you can do. And obviously, sometimes you go far afield. But often, after six years of working on it, you're struggling to find what might be the right look and a different look within uh, limited place. And I know people delight in telling you that they already shot this there or that there and discovering those things. But Michael could always find a way to turn something into something else. The other thing that Michael was, was incredibly fast to figure things out. And I think probably the best example was on The Doctor Falls, where we were on the technical survey, which is when you take, you basically landed on everything you're doing, and you take the entire technical crew to basically 
decide the last chance to decide how you're doing what you're doing. So you have the electricians and you're talking about where you're parking trucks and what equipment you're using and where the electricity is coming from. And halfway through the morning of the technical survey, Pete Bennett, the line producer said, I think we should take a break and decided that the location wasn't good enough. And we went to a pub for lunch and Michael redesigned the entire look of the episode. And this was probably a week before we started shooting. And I just remember him sitting there while we were having our pub lunch and scratching on napkins and in his notebook, an entire new set that he was going to build for the same price as going to locations and an entire look for, and a facade, He was, because the house in Dr. Falls was a facade in a farm and reconceiving the entire thing so that it landed much closer to Stephen Moffat's vision and not, not an element of concern about how they were going to pull this off in absolutely no time and within the budget. Now, there probably was concern, but it was just, I'm going to design this, we're going to make this right. I recall having talked with you about a lot of your work on the episodes that even when something needed to get done last minute, if there was a whole set that needed something new done to it the day before shooting, that even if there was an air of worry, there was still an air of calm of it's just going to get done. We are going to put it together and it is just going to be magnificent at the end of it. Michael had a bag of tricks that was so deep, a never ending bag of tricks. So occasionally, things like the Esbantium wall, we talked a lot about what does a diamond surface look like and how do you shoot it. And we went deeply into, uh, I mean, and Michael would go deeply into the physics and the geology. And then he would say, I know a material. And sometimes in, in that case, he brought out this plastic. <laughs> and I'm like, huh? And then he would bring out representations of how we could shoot it. That was part of his bag of tricks was I've turned a piece of plastic into a tremendous diamond wall and I've turned a piece of dirt into an entire new universe. So he would open your mind to an entirely new concept and push you then to uh, make it as beautiful as you could. I think probably the challenge not only with the diamond wall was not only the look of the flat wall, but we had to create this tunnel. As, as the doctor was punching his way through, we had to keep creating a tunnel that got deeper and deeper. And so Michael designed a modular set so we could build it deeper and deeper and deeper during the day. And it was a genius of design. And he designed it so there was a place to put the lighting. And he designed it so it was easy to move the pieces in and out. And then he had a brilliant crew with him who were able to change the things up in the last minute. And there was never a discomfort if you said, you know, I've come to look at the set and I'm not sure this is going to work. And he would say, okay, we'll make it bigger. Okay, we'll make it smaller. Okay, we'll fix this. Or, no, you're wrong, Rachel, here. Let's put a lens on it. Okay, I'm learning at all Mm -hmm. times. But my, uh, my favorite thing with Michael was location scouting because he knew whether you were in something new or something old, He knew the history, he knew about the materials, he knew about the engineering and the architecture, 
And he trained a lot of students and he brought them in to teach them about set design. And he explained to them how engineering and architecture, that the real degrees were incredibly important to, it wasn't just about the design of the set, it had to function. And because who is this massive creative, uh, I mean, you're often being given tremendous physics problems to solve. And Michael would say, no, we can't sink that under the water without the correct pulley systems or the drag on the weight of the element will break the rope and the pulleys won't work. And and you'd be like, OK, OK, this is well <laughs> beyond well beyond his and, and often understand them. He would say, well, the, because the rope's going to become waterlogged and then the pulley's not going to work here. And you just look at everybody going and, and the volume, how, how impressed they were with him. But I think my favorite day with Michael was we were looking for what was the balcony to the nether sphere on series eight. And we'd been everywhere looking at, we'd been on top of the hotel looking at, we were, and, and it was so ill-defined. And so we were just looking for something that would inspire ideas. And Michael said, let's go look at the Newport Semiconductor Factory that was, it's closed down. Uh, not closed down, but it's been taken over and was designed by Richard Rogers. And we went into the end was therefore um, they couldn't tear it down because it was an architecturally designed building. Mm-hmm. And we go to this unbelievable place that I never would have known about. And we're wandering around and Michael is giving us the history of it. And Michael's giving us the, about the architecture and what's been in there. And in the bottom of this factory is an actual semiconductor factory and they were not allowed to shoot in there because it's all a clean room so they say would you like to look at it and most people would have gone no we can't shoot there so what and michael's like absolutely so we get into fully showered down clean factory clothes and we're fully covered everywhere to go into this semiconductor creation and michael has now they've said no photographs no photographs and and michael has now seduce them into allowing him to take (laughs) photographs of the equipment because it's all research. It's all research. And later on, you would see little elements of of that technology and something else. And then later on, he would talk about how they built semiconductors and how they find the silicon. And so I can't stress enough how he was the consummate aesthete and the consummate scholar. And every day you would learn new things from him and none of them were predictable and it's such an incredible shock and loss that he's gone he sounds like he was an incredible man rachel thank you so much for joining us to remember him thank you may he rest in peace we will miss him great conversation Alyssa, thank you so much for uh bringing rachel in to talk with us about michael pickwood so a uh, quick run through the news that we missed while we were away. Uh, the writers and directors for Series 11 were announced a couple of weeks ago. Writers Mallory Blackman, Ed Heim, Vinay Patel, Pete McTie, and Joy Wilkinson. And director Sally Aparamian, Jamie Childs, Jennifer Parrott, Mark Tondurai. Guess what? That's a really, really representative group of writers and directors. It's pretty amazing. So we have 
two women writing and two women directing, uh, which is impressive, but not necessarily groundbreaking for Doctor Who. Um, two women writing and directing a season um, has sort of been the high water mark. So we've met it, but haven't quite broken through. What was really revolutionary is that we have the first people of color to ever write for the show in its 55-year history. One woman, Mallory Blackman, and one man, Vinay Patel. It's certainly been far too long, and I'm thrilled that they will both be joining. Uh, I've read one of Mallory Blackman's books, and I definitely have more of them on hold at the library, so I will be reading through those as quick as I possibly can before she joins. And we also have an additional male person of color directing for the show. Mark Tondurai is going to be joining. Joy Piedmont, who we're going to be talking to later in the podcast, believes that he is the third person of color to ever direct for the show. The other two include Wayne Yip, who's done some New Who, and the very first director of Doctor Who, Waris Hussein. So, wow, three in 55 years. And there still has not been a woman of color to ever direct for the show. So lots of representation. Progress definitely been made. But whew, we still got a long way to go. Yeah. We had lots of announcements from Big Finish over the last month, and some of them celebrate Big Finish's 20th anniversary. Just running through them real quick, a new Fourth Doctor eSpace adventure set with Lala Ward, John Leeson, and Matthew Waterhouse. So a fair bit of crowded TARDIS with Adric action with the Fourth Doctor. That's a really underserved area of the show. A four-part series with the Seventh Doctor that revisits the era and style of the Virgin New Adventures novels. A sprawling six-part 20th anniversary crossover, The Legacy of Time. Uh, I think my personal highlight there would be Kate Stewart meeting Tim Trelore's Third Doctor and Joe Grant in one episode. And Sheridan Smith is returning as the defining Eighth Doctor companion Lucy Miller for a four-episode series that's set somewhere between her first and second seasons. Any of that uh, Big Finish stuff particularly catch your attention, Alyssa? Lucy Bleeding Miller! Yeah! I love her. I love her so much. Uh, I'm still making my way through quite a few of her audios, but that's really exciting. Also, I'm really a sucker for any Third Doctor era thing, and we've really been overdue for a story where Kate Stewart goes back in time. I'm I'm kind of hoping that maybe there's going to be a Brig cameo somewhere in there, but uh, I definitely have my eye on that story. By now, you have probably seen the Jovanka Airlines promo video. It's Peter Davison's turn for a Blu-ray set, season 19. And uh, I'm sorry, that's just, I'm, I'm kind of giddy about this. And at the same time, when I think about Peter Davison, I start to think about overlit sets and things like that. And I'm like, I'm not sure that this is going to be a comfortable fit for Blu-ray. <laughs> hey, the editing wizards are going to make it look beautiful. I would not have chosen season 19, but I don't get a vote in these things. So, you know, I will just smile and rewatch the Javanka Airlines promo video yeah. again. I mean, to be fair, if you're going to introduce uh, Blue Rays for another doctor, you probably have to do their first year. It's time travel, wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey nonsense. Let's just pick the best season and go from there. 
I don't get a vote in these things ever. Okay. I predict so, also some serious angst over the American cover, which will probably say Doctor Who Peter Davison season one. Oh, God. I hadn't even thought of that. Ugh. Kill it with fire. And on that shiny bright note, uh, let's move on to Gauteng, South Africa, where BBC Studios will have a new Doctor Who experience at Comic-Con Africa at the Kyalami Convention Center. Which sounds awesome. The Doctor Who experience is fantastic. I am curious to see how they're going to translate, which was a fairly set-heavy production to Comic-Con Africa. I can't imagine they're going to be shipping all of those sets over from Cardiff, because that would be ridiculously expensive yeah um, i th- i think it i think it's a experience in a low with a lower case e i don't think it's actually the doctor who experience it's a doctor who experience gotcha well everybody who is going to comic-con africa have a great time sounds fun yeah and uh, what a way to participate in the continent's first ever big comic con In additional fun crossover news, Matt Smith was cast in the new Star Wars movie, according to Variety. And oh my god, I hope he gets to be an Imperial soldier because I really need to see Matt Smith play a villain. I don't know. I just see him more as like an Empire kind of guy than a Rebellion kind of guy. I've thought way too deeply about this and I should probably stop talking now, but Matt Smith is going to be in a Star Wars. Look at our boy. Hi. My name's Hux. This is my other brother, Hux. No. <laughs> no, I'm serious. I mean, you you can see them side by side. They're family. They're totally family. I I actually can. I really, really can. And it that would be just so amazing. But like, oh God, I don't know if I could handle it. And we will now pause for a second in hopes of a last minute reveal of the episode launch date. Ah, damn it. Please not the weekend before Election Day. Please not the weekend before Election Day. Who do I need to pay off to make sure this doesn't happen? The drumbeats are getting louder for a Sunday, and that is also, well, problematic. (laughs) Well, speaking of problematic... This episode is titled Problematic Babes because I read our upcoming topic into Siri for a dictated message to Alyssa, and it came out Problematic Babes, and Alyssa said, and that is totally the title of our episode. So don't get mad at Chip, get mad at me. Right. Uh, But when we come back, Joy Piedmont and Deb Stanish will join us to talk about Problematic Faves. Stick around. This week on The Incomparable Network. Speaking of problematic faves, the TV podcast has launched an epic rewatch of Game of Thrones, right from the beginning. Good lord. Speaking of epic, the Gamble World adventure ends with an epic battle with a giant rabbit with a mechanical claw. If you enjoy listening to funny role-playing games, catch up from the beginning on Total Party Kill. Speaking of adventure, the Summer of Marvel wraps up with future movie ideas and ranking the favorites on The Incomparable. All this and more at TheIncomparable.com.
Welcome back, everyone. So we're going to begin a new series here on This Week in Time Travel about problematic faves, about the things that we love, even when they are difficult to love. Now, I know this conversation can get a little bit tricky and a little bit heated. So we're going to start first by going over the basics of what exactly is a problematic fave and why it's important to approach the media you love with a critical perspective. So joining us for this conversation is Joy Piedmont, the co-producer of Reality Bomb. Welcome, Joy. Thank you. Hi. Happy to be here. And Deb Stanish, the moderator of the Verity podcast. Hello, Deb. Hi. Thanks for having me back after our, our lovely Christmas discussion episode where it got contentious. I mean, thank <laughs> you so much for coming back, really. <laughs> So let's get started and define what we mean by a problematic fave. So we're going to start with Joy. Joy, how would you define a problematic fave for you? Well, first and foremost, I think it's really important to remember that problematic faves are faves. They are works of any kind, really, any kind of media that you really love. And the reason why you call it the problematic fave, the the qualifier on it, is because there is some aspect of it that maybe makes you uncomfortable in some way when you look at it with a critical eye. You know, I kind of think of it as like the head-heart distinction. Something might hit you right in the feels and just makes you want to squee with glee all the time. But when you really turn the critical eye to it, maybe it doesn't hold up as well. Um, And that can be for any number of reasons. How about you, Deb? How would you define it? Yeah, I would definitely have to agree with Joy on that one. It's something, it's something that you love and it's, but it's also something that you recognize, uh, there's some problems with it. Hence the problematic fave. It could be any number of things. It could be a sexist issue. It could be a racist issue. It could be something that because you're looking at perhaps dated material, uh, literature is great for this. Uh, you're reading a book that you really like and there might be something in there that like, oh, yeah, I, I have to step back from that because uh, if this thing were happening today, this would not be on. So it's something that you can recognize as problematic, but yet understand that there is still value in this, even if it's just an emotional value, but you, you're you not accepting it that it's not flawed. You are looking at its flaws and you are loving it anyway. Problematic is a word that kind of is not very well understood in many circles. It really kind of came out of an academic context when people were talking about how to problematize certain material, about how to question it, how to analyze it. And now it's been pulled into a pop culture context and sort of been misunderstood by people. So when we say problematic, what really fits into this box? And is it different from calling material offensive? You know, it's funny because I kind of come at it, I, I really come at it from a fandom perspective because this hit super hard back in the days of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Here's a really, really good example of a problematic fave. The character of Spike Mm. was one that was a fan favorite. He is something that in the fandom circles, we like to call a whoopee. Uh, Somebody who uh, was, um, you know, perhaps beaten down a little bit or, or had some qualities that you were trying to redeem because... Uh, you saw good in this character. And he was hella problematic, especially in the sixth season where he actually attempted to rape Buffy. Mm. 
And this was the catalyst for him going off and getting his soul, which was supposed to be his big redemption arc. And eventually she did come to forgive him. Now, you break any of those things that I just said down. And and that is not good. If this were happening in real life, if this were happening in, in fact, if it were probably happening today, we'd be giving this a, tr- a tremendous side eye. So you had an entire fandom trying to like deal with this character that you had been rooting for, that you had really enjoyed, and who had done something really horrible. And how do you, how do you say, okay, I can still enjoy this character, even though there was this horrendous thing that he did? And sure, he's being redeemed, but can we really accept that? Can we accept that redemption? So to say that it caused a bit of a fandom rift is is an understatement, but it, it really made you kind of grapple with this idea of character development, where a creator was going to take a character and how you were going to react to that. Were you going to react to it in the way the creator intended you to react? So, um, you know, not coming from an academic perspective, but coming from a fandom perspective, it's something that's been around for a really, really long time. It also is the res- the result of this is also called the fix it fic where mm-hmm. fandom has gone on to create alternate realities in which they have written stories where this thing either did not happen or it happened in a different way or they have taken this problematic thing and then have then fixed it uh in a way that they have deemed to be more acceptable so you know, fandom has a really, really long history of problematic faves and then trying to uh, make it better in a way or at least have discussions around this thing that you realize that, yeah, this is really hella problematic. But let's let this be the jumping point of a larger conversation, which I think is incredibly healthy. It's interesting because when I think of the word problematic, I don't think it necessarily includes um, things that are offensive, but it can. And I don't actually even love the term because I think it's actually kind of vague. And if I want to call out something that I think is either racist or sexist, um, misogynist in a work, I'd rather just say those things. And I think sometimes we turn to using the word problematic as like a softer way of calling out um, things that we see. And in some ways, that kind of ties into the fact that we're calling something a problematic fave. You know, calling something racist sounds a lot harsher than saying, well, it's problematic in its depiction, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And I think there is kind of that element that does come out of fandom where you want to be loving (laughs) in your criticism. Um, And so it's easier, and I think often it feels a little bit fairer to say that something is problematic rather than saying, well, this is actually kind of misogynist or promotes some sort of like bad depiction of either race or gender, sexuality. And um, I don't know, like, I think that sometimes when things are actually offensive, people are more more willing to call it out as those more specific terms. Mm-hmm. Is it also sometimes helpful when it's, you know, a sort of gray area, you know, like Deb said, of it can be uh, a little antiquated, uh, where you're looking at older perspectives on something and thinking like, yeah, I know it comes from that time. So like, I understand it or like, gray areas in terms of one of the things I'm thinking is sort of representation of queer characters on television. There are some characters where it gets into queer baiting territory a little bit, like how I feel about Clara Oswald. There's a lot of moments where they hint 
she could be bisexual. Maybe she's bisexual. We're not going to, you know, say she's bisexual, but we're going to imply that she's kissed Jane Austen. And that on its own can maybe be something upsetting, even if it isn't explicitly homophobic or biphobic in its depiction. Right. And a lot of times, too, the, the consideration is also like, do we feel that there is ill will or kind of malice in this writing? And the example I always think of when I think of problematic fave is Harry Potter, because it mm-hmm. is filled with things that are problematic. And, you know, if you know anything about J.K. Rowling, you know that this is a progressive woman who wrote these books because, you know, she was trying to depict the evil nature of hate, basically. And yet she still gets it wrong in a lot of ways. And the thing that my students always point out is um, Hermione and her crusade with um, trying to protect house elves and how she's basically like a white savior trying Mm -hmm. to like impose her values on these house elves. And, you know, from one perspective, you can look at it and think like, oh, you know, what a nice thing to show Hermione's like devoted to the cause of house elf liberation, but seen from another angle, it's really problematic that Hermione takes this upon herself without any consideration of what the house elves actually want and doesn't listen to their voices and doesn't value their voices in the conversation. It's problematic. And (laughs) I think that the reason why it's a little bit forgivable in some ways, I mean, I hate using that term, but it's because I think that there is all of this evidence in the surrounding text and also in what we know about J.K. Rowling to suggest that was not done with any sort of ill will at heart. Mm-hmm. So we've been talking about this for a while. And one of the things that has come up in conversation about problematic faves um, within this group is really how to balance that tension between loving something deeply and also finding something difficult to love about it and wanting to publicly examine and critique it. So what do we think is different about the way that we have to view media that makes it possible for us to really have problematic faves, to love and criticize something equally? You know, I think for me, and this is, again, this is a conversation that we have had in order for me and I'm only speaking for myself, but I think a lot of people would agree for me, you know, as a feminist, it is really difficult to consume a tremendous amount of media and not find something problematic in it. Uh, whether it's just even in modern television, the unconscious bias, there was, there was something that was just flashed across my Twitter feed the other day where, uh, you know, the media was accusing one of the uh, or was stating that one of the contestants on Strictly in the UK this year of you know, abandoning her children as she went to compete. And Nicola Sturgeon of, of the PM of Scotland said, you know, how many men will this be leveled at? Because there's just this level sort of unconscious bias that we just deal with constantly. And in order to be able to enjoy a, a large percentage of media, you have to be able to look at this thing critically. You have to be able to acknowledge that this is happening. But on the other hand, you be able to derive whatever pleasure that you can from it. And I'm, I'm thinking specifically, and it's not just, it's not just a feminist thing. It's, it's a classist thing. It's a racist thing. It's a queer thing. Uh, I remember Una McCormick telling, saying when the ninth doctor was cast, how wonderful it was to hear somebody with a working class accent in Doctor Who, because she could now see herself in 
this world where before it was something that she sort of had to imagine. She had to get around, you know, the RP accent that Doctor Who was using. Um, you know, a good example is I adore James Bond films and even modern day James Bond films are really <laughs> problematic. And I have to be able to set myself aside from that, acknowledge that this is really problematic. Look at what's happening on screen saying, yes, that is really misogynistic. That is really this. It is really, you know, whatever is you want to apply to it because it could probably hit a bunch of those buttons, but I can still enjoy, enjoy this thing on a certain level. If I, if I, if everything that was problematic came across the screen and said, I cannot watch this, I, I, there's very little on television other than, you know, the Great British Bake Off that I probably could watch. Um, <laughs> and I just think you just get, you get to the point where you can put these things in boxes and you're not denying it. I mean, don't get me wrong. You are not denying that there's this really problematic thing happening or there's this really, this thing that needs to be called out. But you're also being able to enjoy it on a certain level acknowledging that it's a problem and having some interest, I think having some really interesting discussions about why that is problematic and why this thing needs to be done better in the future. So it's, it's almost like a split personality at times <laughs> in viewing and consuming media because there's, there's very little pure, pure good media out there. I think that's exactly right, Deb, that it's it's like having a split personality. And especially when you grow up, um, as you know, McCormick said, like not seeing yourself represented on TV or in movies, um, even in the books you may read, you kind of get used to not having your perspective, not having your voice reflected back at you. So you are, of course, going to encounter a perspective that does not take you into account, which means that it's going to lead to a lot of problematic depictions. And, you know, like the example I think of sometimes when it comes to this is um, the the musical Thoroughly Modern Millie, which was a movie first, but then they made it into a stage musical. And um, there's a character in it that is a, a Chinese lady played by a white woman. And oh she runs an evil laundry where she's selling white girls into slavery. Oh, <laughs> my God. It's really horrible, but it is a delightful musical. <laughs> and um, I loved this show growing up. I still love it because it's really fun. The music's great. Julie Andrews and Mary Tyler Moore are in the movie, and they are wonderful. Um, but it's got this horrible, horrible thing at the center, and it's like the conflict that the entire plot turns on. Um, and in order to enjoy this movie and then the, the subsequent musical that came out of it, um, I have to – my brain operates in two different wavelengths. On the one hand, you know, I, I enjoy the music. I love the dancing and the singing and the whole spectacle of it. And there's a really great romance at the center. And then there's the other side of my brain that just tries to, like, see around the the real – really terrible racism that's going on at the same exact time because there's actually really no excuse for it and it's just horrendous and both of those things can be true at the same time and for me it's the balance is always is the good thing enough to outweigh the bad thing so that I can still enjoy myself and as Deb said, you get to a point sometimes in your life where you just have to, you're constantly having to make those decisions. And so you, you do have, end up having a little bit of a split personality, but when you're so used to it, it's just like second nature. It's it, those two thoughts can coexist harmoniously and you know, it, it becomes a problem when I think when the thing that is problematic, um, you can't let go of it when it's when it's overwhelming. And that's when it becomes hard to ignore. 
Yeah. Or the fact that I've been thinking about this a lot lately about self-identification too, because I think particularly women have an issue, and I'm again speaking from a personal experience, uh, greatly in literature and film, where you're trying to find an identification point. And a lot of times, like in Jane's Bond, like I never identified with any of the Bond girls. I always identified with Bond. I pictured myself as Bond. You know, if I was doing a self-insert, like that was the character I identified with, which I don't know that I was necessarily the audience for that. I think I was supposed to, in a filmmaker's mind, I was want I should want to be the Bond girl, the one that he falls in love with. But no, I always saw myself as the action hero. And I, I was thinking about this in terms of this podcast and wondering whether, you know, perhaps this is where we get this, mis- you know, self-loathing and misandry from because as women, mm. we grow up so often having to try to find ourselves in texts that we end up identifying more with male characters only because they're so much more predominant in media that it, it does cause a little bit of a self-perpetuating cycle of misogyny. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's really complicated because we shouldn't have to try so hard to find a character, which is why I'm so excited that we're finally getting a female doctor mm-hmm. because there's a lot of people that are going to be able to not have to identify as, as the companion. If that's who they feel, the girls feel like they should have to identify with the companion, even though many of them will identify as the doctor, regardless of, of the gender. I think it's really great that the outward and the inward are going to sort of mesh for the first time. And it's not going to have to be an academic or a struggle to to mesh those two parts. It's just mm. going to be there on a platter and you can take it. And that is such a gift. I think something very related to that that I've been mulling over a lot lately is even awesome female characters that are not the main character can still have that same problem, that same difficulty. Because one of the arguments that I encountered so often when I was arguing that we needed a woman doctor is, well, are you denigrating the companions? The companions are awesome. And Mm. they are, but they don't get the hero moment as often as the doctor does. The plot doesn't revolve around them as much as it revolves around the doctor. And they do have character arcs to varying degrees, but this is really the doctor's story. The companions have limited time on our screen. They always have to leave. And even if the doctor changes, the doctor is really the only constant throughout this show. And, you know, I think I had this problem a lot with Star Wars, actually, because Princess Leia is pretty dang awesome. But I didn't want to be Princess Leia. I wanted to be Luke. I wanted to have the hero's journey. I wanted to have the hero moments that the main character had. And it's that that same thing of trying to find an identifying character even if they are an awesome character and they have cool moments and they have a story, if it's not the hero and the story doesn't revolve around them and their journey, you still sort of on some level want to be that hero. And girls don't have enough of those heroes. So they have to find other characters and they always have to sort of make their peace that they're going to be the side character more mm. often than the main character. Mm. And I do think we have to acknowledge that 
even women have more of those side characters than we have people of color because, mm-hmm. you know, it tends to be those side characters very frequently tend to be white women. So we even we even have more of an identification than many, many people out there. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to kind of go back to a point about that, Joy, you were making about when the bad outweighs the good. And I think one of the things that has been very frustrating for me lately is that there are so many people that don't understand that critiquing media is not the same as hating media. And what can exasperate me more than even the original problematic thing is when a fandom completely refuses to acknowledge that the thing is a problem or be willing to even have a conversation about it, that Mm. it's constantly shut down. And so that, to me, can sometimes completely overwhelm even the good things in a piece of media because I know I can't talk about this, or if I do, I get harassed or shut down about that. Do you Mm -hmm. find that problem impacts you at all? Oh, for sure. And the the hardest part of it is that, um, you know, when you're having those conversations – I'm guilty of this too, right? Like the things that I love, I consider a part of my identity. I love Doctor Who. It is a part of my identity. It's like a huge part of my life. And so if someone were to insult or critique Doctor Who in some way, you know, like lizard part of my brain would kind of like perk up and be like, "Uh uh-oh, my entire existence and being is being threatened. (laughs) I have to defend myself now. And that's human nature. That is very natural and okay to happen. But, you know, when you are used to having to bifurcate your feelings and look at things critically, as well as being able to love them with your whole heart at the same time, you know, you kind of learn how to how to juggle those two things at the same time. Not everyone can do that. And so you get into these conversations with some folks who, when you say, hey, this thing that you really love has some things in it that are harmful to others. Um, you know, some depictions that maybe are problematic in some way. That to them is as though they hear that as the equivalent of you saying to them, you are racist or you are mm-hmm. sexist. Mm-hmm. And it's just impossible to go anywhere after someone feels that they have been called called that because no one wants to think of themselves as a quote unquote bad person. I genuinely don't know what the answer is um, to engaging in those kinds of conversations because I don't know how to get around that lizard brain reaction. Yeah, it's so hard because people identify so strongly with the media, you know, as we saw with the recent dust up about the talents of Wang Chiang. People identify you critiquing that story with saying that they are a terrible human being. And I, and I honestly, I don't understand that at all because human beings are complicated. We could hold two completely opposite thoughts at the exact same time. Um, you know, our brains are, brains are kind of funny like that. You know, we can, we can hold multiple points of view and to be able to say something that you love has some racist moments. I mean, it's okay. We can acknowledge that there is something from a time, even if you want to put it into perspective, and even if you want to give yourself the justification, if you need to, that it is from a different era. uh, And yes, it is very racist. And that's not okay now, but it's still a pretty good story. I'm looking at you, Agatha Christie, because I adore Mm. you. But my Mm. gosh, let me tell you, 
it's it's not a personal attack on me. Like I can still love that thing. I I reread Agatha Christie all the time. It's comfort reading to me. It is incredibly racist. It's incredibly classist. And I can look at that and say, "Ooh, Agatha, I think if you were alive today, we'd have to sit down and have some conversations about this. But it doesn't mean that my liking them makes me that person. It doesn't make me a racist for enjoying this this thing. Like I can appreciate the fact of uh, the person writing it may have had different values, may have had different mores than me. I can I can acknowledge that. I can move on, and I don't understand. It doesn't feel like a personal attack to me if somebody would walk up to me and say, you know, Rosamund, or not Rosamund Pilcher, she's another one who I enjoy that also has some, some issues. Um, you know, Agatha Christie is, is, she's, she's really problematic. And I can say, yes, she really, really is. However, I can still enjoy her work and acknowledge those things. Doesn't mean that I'm a racist. It doesn't mean that, uh, you know, I'm going to take this to heart and, and, and come out with pitchforks and torches and things. Um, you know, I just think you have to be able to acknowledge these things and then and talk about why and talk about what happened and why they were written like that. Like there's so many interesting conversations that can come out of the fact that you acknowledge the thing mm. that you love has some problems. And I don't understand why people aren't willing to kind of pick that apart a little bit more. Mm hmm. I think you both said something interesting in a conversation a few weeks ago about this, that it's you know, I think for those of us who are members of marginalized communities in one way or another, we have to put ourselves in and out of those boxes so often to be able to enjoy a piece of media that we're a little bit more trained to be able to say, yes, this is a problem and I still enjoy it anyway. And for those people that don't have to hop in and out of those boxes so often, uh, that doesn't come as naturally or they don't understand that people can hold those opinions at the same time. You know, we've been doing mental gymnastics over here to be able to say, yes, I know this movie has problems, but oh my God, I love it anyway. Mm -hmm. You know, I think for me, one of the things that I, you know, constantly come back to is the fact that Joe Grant is one of my absolute favorite companions. And I have told people this at conventions and the look on their face when they hear that me, who goes by the name Whovian Feminism on the internet, thinks that Joe Grant is one of the best companions. It's, it's, I, it's kind of a game now. It's my own personal amusement watching the shock and like borderline horror on their face because she's not known for being one of the strident uh, feminist companions. She's known for being kind of one of the screamers. Um, but she has like a really interesting character growth during her time. And there's so many times that they tell Joe, you know, don't do the thing. And she goes, okay, I won't do the thing. And then like 30 seconds later, she's walked away and done the thing anyway. <laughs> so, you know, there are really horrific moments during her tenure. Like there's one episode where she's written to say, I know I'm exceedingly dim. And I'm like, she's like one of the smartest dang agents in unit. Who told her that she needed to go up there and say, I'm exceedingly dim? Because she's not. But my brain basically has deleted episode one of the time monster. So that moment doesn't exist for me. And I just go <laughs> ahead and enjoy everything about her anyway. And if you, or you realize that she's saying that as a diversionary tactic, so people will think she's dim. Oh, Deb, thank you. I can watch that episode again now. Because <laughs> I agree with you. I am on the the uh, Joe Grant rehabilitation bandwagon because <laughs> she is taking the toolbox and what she has given during the time she has given it. And she is doing amazing. She's building a whole new house and, and most people don't even see it. 
Yep. But if you're not doing those mental gymnastics all the time, you may not be able to make that leap of logic quite so easily. I think that's what we like to call in the business privilege. If you've mm. never had to do that before and all of a sudden now you do, it's like trying to give – it's the idea that trying to give everybody equal amounts of pie feels like you were losing your whole pie. Mm. So we're about to wrap up here, and uh, in the future of this series, we're going to be delving in a little bit deeper into uh, some of our friends' problematic phase. But before we go, Deb, Joy, do either of you have one more problematic fave you want to bring up and explain why you love it anyways? I've thought about this a lot, and surprisingly or not surprisingly, if you know me, because you know I'm a big musical theater nerd, um, most of my examples come from musical theater, um, because believe it or not, funnily enough, most of the musical theater canon is written by white men. Shocking. And, you know, Mm -hmm. that can lend itself to a, a kind of narrow perspective, which means that women and people of color don't really come off in the greatest light. Many of my favorite shows, um, are about terrible, terrible men who have to be redeemed by a wonderful woman in some way who has never written as well as the man and doesn't get nearly as many great songs as that dude. But I love those shows anyway. And my most recent example, um, which many people adore, as do I, is My Fair Lady. Henry Higgins is a terrible, awful person. But when you watch him on stage and he's singing and he's doing his thing, he's irresistible. I don't know why. He just is. And it is really hard to watch a man talk so degradingly about women and love him at the same time anyway. But the music is so gosh darn good, and especially when you see a production that is gorgeous, like the one that is at Lincoln Center right now, and it's so beautiful, and you've got Dame Diana Rigg being fabulous and amazing in it as well, Um, and that production is particularly directed from a feminist perspective. Like, the whole thing is just impossible. Um, It's impossible not to love, yet at the same time, you know, we are meant to love this pretty awful misogynist. (laughs) Yeah, I think, you know, every classic Hollywood movie that I love with Katherine Hepburn and Cary Grant, there's always there's always an itch there. It, you know, it's really hard to pinpoint any one thing because I've just gotten so – there's just so much. I mean, there's so much of it. I, I do think that it's it's – worth noting that your opinion on things can also change as you mature and as you get older and your life circumstances change. Uh, for example, when I was 21, I adored Les Miserables. I mm. went to see the show. I cried buckets. I thought it was the most, it was the most moving thing that I had experienced in live theater up until that point. I went to see it, uh, I guess it was not last summer, but the summer before when it was in New York, I took my mother and I took my son who re- who loved the music and really wanted to see it. I walked out of there just rolling my eyes so hard about these <laughs> overdramatic men who just couldn't handle it and were throwing themselves off bridges because their morals were compromised. And I, I walked out of there thinking all the women in that show deserve better, the two of them. Um, <laughs> 
<laughs> they deserve so much more. And the men were ridiculous. So I think it's, it's, you can have something that is a problematic fave and then it just can become problematic enough that you can say, okay, I'm done with it. And that's okay too, because we are humans and we can grow. Uh, so, you know, don't beat yourself up too much that if you do find this thing that you previously had made enough excuses for that you could still enjoy the content of it, find that that may no longer be the case someday. <laughs> I think that's a perfect point to end this conversation on. So Joy, Deb, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Uh, Joy, where can people find you? Uh, people can follow me on Twitter at, at @inquiringjoy. And Deb, where can people find you? I am also on the Twitters at Deb Stanish. All right. Thank you both. Thank you. Thank you, Alyssa. Thank you, Chip, in the background. <laughs> Just lurking. Well, it's good to be back. And, of course, we came back with a really long episode. We had a lot to catch up on, you know? We will be back next week, and I'm grateful to be back in the saddle with you. You can find more of our episodes at thisweekintimetravel.com. We are at DRWho This Week on Twitter. I am at numeral two minute time lord on Twitter. And Alyssa is at Whovian Feminism on Twitter and Tumblr, and at Alyssa Frankie on Twitter. And we're also on Facebook. Thanks to Christopher Breen for our original theme music, to David J. Lohr for our original podcast logo and avatar. And please review us on Apple Podcasts and consider becoming a member of the Incomparable Network. And maybe tell all of your friends about us. We'll see you next week on This Week in Time Travel. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.